Previously on Mafia. Arnold Rothstein stepped from the shadows of big-time gambling into the mob's spotlight after fixing the 1919 World Series. So what happened was Rothstein heard that there could be big dough for the players if they double-crossed Kaminsky, took a bribe, and blew the World Series. And some of these players thought this was a way of revenge, retaliation for Kaminsky underpaying them. Rothstein's pockets and connections ran deep, and ran even deeper with the advent of prohibition and selling top-shelf booze. Arnold Rothstein's gambling house in Saratoga and Long Beach, Long Island, were very high-class operations. He decided that that was the way to make money in bootlegging. You bring the good stuff over from Scotland, over from England, you sell it to the best people. And like any good businessman, Rothstein recruited a hand-picked group of protégés to do his bidding. But not all of them were good choices. And Luciano and Lasky saw themselves as progressors. They saw Dutch Schultz as what would be called in Yiddish a vildechaya, an animal. And Dutch Schultz was someone they wanted very much to get away from. This is Mafia. With a group of violent but competent criminals at his disposal, Rothstein had gone from high-stakes gambler to the richest crook in the nation. But Rothstein himself was no thug. He was simply a businessman. Eric Desenhall is the author of The Devil Himself. Um, he was really a racketeer rather than a gangster because he wasn't an especially violent guy. He was all about business. Uh, unlike almost every other one of these gangsters, he grew up rich. He was from a very nice family. David Petruja is a Rothstein biographer. Many people see Arnold Rothstein because of the way he comports himself the way he speaks, the way he can speak, the way he dresses, uh, that it's very middle class, very business-like, and also in his personal habits. He's not a drinker, he's not a smoker. He does have one weakness, though. He loves milk and he loves cake. Uh, and that is as wild a living guy as he is. But this is probably the, the sane center of an otherwise electrified existence, uh, combining violence and greed and corruption. And Rothstein wanted to build his team in his own image. Their bootlegging business catered to the rich and cultured, so they should know how to act the part. So Arnold Rothstein was not only the mentor to Lucky Luciano in the gangster business, but in the fashion business and turning a cheap, Lower East Side hoodlum into a gangland fashion plate. He taught Luciano and the others to have good taste, no proper dining etiquette, and how to dress like a gentleman. Arnold Rothstein gives inspiration to the two great 20th century mob leaders, Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky. He also gives these guys a sense of self-betterment, 
that you shouldn't dress like slobs. You should have better vocabulary. And that was a very important touchstone. He was an especially important figure to Meyer Lansky because like Rothstein before him, later Meyer Lansky also became a gangster who didn't have much of a gang. He was a private equity guy. He brought deals together as were convenient, but he never wanted to get involved with the management of a gang because that meant personnel problems, headaches. Didn't want to do it. His view, worry about your own gang, let's worry about making money. This would later become the future of organized crime, acting like businessmen, not just as muscle. But first, Rothstein would have to teach them how to get out of sticky situations without resorting to violence. In June 1923, Luciano was moonlighting as a hitman and drug dealer for the Sicilian mob bosses. He was caught in a police sting selling drugs in Manhattan. Unlike Rothstein, Luciano couldn't just pay off the law. Instead, he opted to save his own skin by ratting out some other mobsters. Lucky Luciano is peddling drugs on 14th Street, and he gets nabbed with a little too much on him for his own good. He makes a deal with the police. He rats out some of his associates and walks away. At which point, Luciano has two problems. One, his upper-class clients don't want to be associated with a low-level 14th Street drug dealer, and his gangster associates don't want to be associated with a snitch, a rat. So he has to rehabilitate himself. This was one of the unspoken laws of the criminal world. You don't snitch. Luciano had to redeem himself, and lucky for him, Rothstein was an expert in PR. And he says, Arnold, how can I do this? How can I get back in, in good graces? Arnold is, is in, in a sense, a master of public relations and uh, repairing reputations, what reputation a lucky Luciano may have. And he says, here's how you do it. Here's how you do it. There's going to be a big prize fight coming up in New York, the great Jack Dempsey and Luis Firpo. What you do is you spend a huge amount of money on tickets, ringside tickets, the best possible. And then you just give them away to the best possible people, the politically connected people, the, your rivals in, in gangsterism. And all of a sudden, they will look upon you with favor. And the other thing is that wardrobe of yours. No good. You should dress elegantly, not like some cheap hood, and I'll show you how to do it. Here's some fabrics I brought back from Paris. Here's some Solka ties. Maybe occasionally you can wear a blue serge suit. Uh, oh, and here's a nice overcoat. And Luciano kept up with that for the rest of his life and always acknowledged Arnold Rothstein as being his mentor in the gangster business and in the fashion business. Luciano did as he was told and distributed the tickets to rich businessmen, important congressmen, and to big-shot gangsters. Then, to top it off, Luciano appeared at the match dressed to the nines. His reputation was restored, and it pointed back to Rothstein. 
Thomas Frappetto is the author of American Mafia. Isn't that what the successful manager does? A win-win strategy. Bit by bit, Rothstein took prominence within New York's criminal world. Everyone knew him and knew he could be trusted. And even that he turned into a business. He could call in favors whenever he wanted. Lana Guggenheim is an educator at the Museum of the American Gangster. Rothstein himself also took a, a mediator position, and he would frequently mediate disputes among these various New York gangs, of course, charging a very large fee for such services. He would do business standing on the street, surrounding my bodyguards, and sort out people's differences. Rothstein also became known as the person who could loan money to anyone, gangster or not. In New York, he is numero uno, number one, the big man, the big bankroll, the guy who puts everything together. If you want to make a deal work, you see him. If you need the money, you see him. Well, Rothstein loans people money, and he, and he wants a lot of interest. And if they don't pay him back, he feels that he owns them, and they can do certain favors for him. That's how he ends up using his muscle. Uh, he wasn't entirely upset when he didn't get money back because then he could get people to do the dirty work that he personally didn't want to do. I know one of the things that Rothstein had been known for was borrowing money from people himself who he knew were not long for this world. So you borrow money and it turns out the person you borrow money from ends up dead. You end up with a nice little profit. But bankrolling the mob put a dent in his finance. The big bankroll soon needed an additional source of income. He moved into what would become a cash cow in the future mafia, labor racketeering. In 1926, unions were getting a foothold in the American workforce, and employees would often strike for better working conditions. But bosses would pay good money to put pressure on their workers not to strike. Reportedly, Rothstein connected with Louis Lepke Bacalter, a violent gangster who specialized in breaking strikes for the factory bosses. Louis Lepke Bacalter was in the garment district. They worked as labor sluggers. Sometimes they would work for management and slug the union people. So they said, hey, why not work for the union too and slug management? Uh, you know, win-win there, too. Uh, and Rothstein was sort of a mentor to Lefke on that, on how to run the garment center. Don't just work for management, you know, work both sides. And also, then, if you went to them for help, you know, garment business is so uncertain, some dress might not be popular that comes out, lose a lot of money. So the mob got their money in there. When they came in as partners, you lost half your business, and then maybe eventually they just got rid of you completely. But even tough guys like Lepke still relied on big business. They only got paid when there was a strike. David Petruja says that Rothstein became the go-to go-between for both the workers and the bosses. New York City, at one time, was... A a great manufacturing hub of the American economy. They call the garment district the garment district because garments were made there, not just designed there. And there were a lot of people toiling in the sweatshops, a lot of women, a lot of men. There was a lot of labor discord going on in the teens and the 20s. 
There were unions being formed. There were unions being broken. And you broke them or you formed them with muscle. Labor hired goons. Management hired goons. And one of the go-betweens in all this, as one of the go-betweens in all the enterprises in New York City, was Arnold Rothstein. Rothstein had the brains and the muscle on his side and had become a multi-millionaire criminal mastermind. But the crime world brought with it violence, and his protégés brought more than their share. Sometimes there's a downside to having protégés, and one of the protégés who is particularly troublesome to Arnold Rothstein is a guy named Arthur Flegenheimer, better known as Dutch Schultz. Bootlegger, thug, and eventually he will just resist Arnold Rothstein's attempt to divvy up the bootlegging, rum-running, beer-manufacturing areas of Manhattan into convenient, safe areas because Schultz is one of those guys who is not going to be boxed in, who will use the muscle, who is an out-and-out killer. Dutch Schultz was one of the young gangsters Rothstein had hired to be a bootlegger. But dissatisfied with his cut, Schultz wanted to strike out alone. With his own gang, Schultz started to hijack Rothstein's booze deliveries. But Rothstein saw it as a turning point. At this point, it was the late 1920s, and Prohibition was on its way out. And one of his other protégés had opened the door on a business that would make their liquor racket look small. It was the same business that had gotten Luciano in trouble, but it had also been his source of income. Luciano told Rothstein about the unprecedented demand on the streets for drugs. Bernard Whalen is the author of Undisclosed Files of the Police. Heroin was something that was becoming popular, uh, injecting heroin. And there was a trade, you know, the, the poppies from China or whatever were coming over and Rothstein, again, being the brain, saw a market that he could capitalize on. So he gets involved in it. It's pretty simple. They just look, hey, uh, some mobsters might say, no drugs for me. I, want, I don't want us involved in drugs. Rothstein had no qualms about things like that. If they could line his pocket, he was interested, certainly at least exploring it. Heroin was still legally produced in Europe and China. And when it came to importing illegal goods, Rothstein was an expert. He soon turned his booze network into a drug network. Arnold Rothstein needs to shift resources, cash, from bootlegging into the importation from Europe and China of massive quantities of illegal drugs. Prior to Arnold Rothstein, the drug trade was extremely disoriented. It was not organized at all. But when you have his amount of brains and cash and connections behind any enterprise, it's going to go up exponentially. So because of that, it really is accurate to speak of Arnold Rothstein as the father of the modern American drug trade. Rothstein's network of alcohol buyers quickly set up deals with heroin factories across Europe and flooded the American streets. Rothstein would uh, 
probably prefer to uh, sell it to somebody to distribute. He's not necessarily the guy, but he's going to make money on it. He he knew how to keep his hands clean uh, of th- things like that. So by importing it, arranging it for it to be distributed by somebody else, he's put a layer between him and the drug, a wall almost, that makes it very hard for authorities to penetrate. So there was probably a lot of loopholes that you could get away with that you probably couldn't get away with now, back then. And he was a guy to take advantage of. It's pretty simple. With the smooth flow of operations and the money coming in, Rothstein wanted to push his criminal empire beyond the borders of the United States. David Petruja says Rothstein began to pursue global distribution channels. But for that to work, he would need the help of someone even richer than himself. In the late 1920s, Arnold Rothstein is seen in New York holding meetings with a Belgian mystery man who is reputed to be the third wealthiest man in the world, a fellow named Captain Alfred Lowenstein. He was so wealthy, when Belgium was overrun by the Germans, he said, well, let's just buy it back from them. That Rothstein and Lowenthal were putting together a really, really super cartel of the drug trade. Rothstein in America, Lowenstein in Europe. But what happens, even before things kept catch up with Arnold Rothstein, is that things really catch up with Lowenstein and in the most mysterious way possible. He's flying across the English Channel and goes to the bathroom in the back of the plane. And then when they land, he's not there. He's vanished. Lowenstein was later found dead in a field in France. News reached Rothstein in New York. And that was the end of the international drug empire. But what would have happened had he survived would have created that super cartel of international drug trade. What would have happened, what would have happened had he lived is really beyond comprehension as to how much of volume, how great a volume of drugs would have flooded into the United States of America from Europe. But Arnold Rothstein's connection to Lowenstein, to other drug dealers, causes him to devote huge percentages of his available capital to that investment and is going to cause shortages, shortfalls in his balance sheets and help lead to his ultimate downfall. The collapsed drug deal was where things began to unravel. Soon, more of Rothstein's investments folded. When Rothstein starts to invest in drugs, he's having to put a lot of money into the project. He's also investing in a real estate project in Queens. He starts losing money at the track. He starts losing money in poker games. All of a sudden, the big bankroll has big problems in keeping his payments and his finances straight. Rothstein's judgment uh, appears to be deteriorating rather badly in the 1920s. 
he is making bad investments, hanging around with worse and worse and more dangerous people. His marriage is falling apart, uh, which I don't think we should downplay. I think that the pressure gets to him on all sides. The mobsters he had schooled in organized crime were on their own now, and many were out of control. Luciano had been drawn into a murderous feud between two Italian crime families, and the sadistic Dutch Schultz was now the most feared man in New York. And Rothstein was getting older. There was only so long he could keep up all of his rackets. Most gamblers are addicts, and Arnold Rothstein is no exception. Intellectually, he will know when to quit, when to pull back, Emotionally, and particularly the longer his career goes on, he cannot control that urge which motivates him in the beginning to be the big man at the roulette table or the card table at the gambling house or the racetrack. And the saying goes, when you're hot, you're hot. And he's hot for a very long time. And when you're not, you're not. September 10th, 1928. Rothstein was invited to an event happening at Manhattan's Congress Apartments at 54th Street and 7th Avenue. It was an opportunity to win half a million. For a lifetime gambler like Rothstein, it would be an opportunity to repay some of his accrued gambling debts. Rothstein has hands good enough to win, never quite wins, just misses enough to keep him in the game, and he should really walk away, and the other guys want to walk away because they're ahead, and he says, no, no, let's keep playing. And he keeps playing and plunging and losing and losing. The game had been going on for 36 hours straight. Rothstein had so far lost the equivalent of $4 million. But he refused to cut his losses and give up. Rothstein suggested they bet a final $40,000 on a cut of the deck. Selwyn Rabb is the author of Five Families. You know, people, people like Rothstein begin to believe themselves invincible. So when he gets involved in a high-stakes game and he loses a couple of hundred thousand dollars, now whether he was right or wrong, whether he thought he could never really lose that kind of uh, bankroll, he decided that the game must have been fixed, otherwise he wouldn't lose. But it was the luck of the draw. Rothstein had lost again. And he couldn't believe it. How could, he's telling himself probably, how could I lose $320,000? That game has to be fixed. There's no way that me, Arnold Rothstein, could lose that kind of money. So what happens is he doesn't want to pay. He doesn't want to pay. He has these chits out, $320,000. That's big bucks back then. Several million today, equivalent. So he decides uh, he's going to delay it, stall it. Whether, I don't know if he had the money to pay him or just didn't want to. And uh, the person takes out a gun. And whatever happens, Rostings ends up shot in the gut. And his words to the guy are, hey, uh, that all you got? Well, it turned out to be enough. Rothstein stumbles out of the room, down four floors to the street of this 
hotel. Annie grabs a passerby and says, hey, I've been shot. You know, I need an ambulance. Rothstein was taken to the hospital. Even mortally wounded, he refused to cooperate with the police. When officers asked him, who shot you? Rothstein replied, my mother. Rothstein refuses to provide any assistance to the police. He'd always said he would he would rat out anyone if it was in his favor. But for some reason, he will not do so on his deathbed. The next day, the man who had made organized crime died. There was one question on everyone's lips. Who killed Arnold Rothstein? Police returned to the crime scene to follow up, but everyone was already gone. There was a blood trail and smoke in the air. The only thing they found was an overcoat with a label, George McManus, a fellow gambler. Now what happened is, uh, when the police arrested George McManus, the star detective of the NYPD took him into custody. They let him stop and get a haircut. He said a little courtesy because George was going to have his picture in the paper. The detective, of course, was suspended. McManus was the most obvious suspect. He had been at the crime scene, and Rothstein owed him over a million dollars. But aside from the coat, there was no other evidence. McManus was acquitted. Uh, and Rothstein was fatally wounded. It was not a mob hit. Nobody was trying to take over his business. It's just a personal thing. You owe me some money, pay me back. You don't want to pay? Look, I'm, I'm not, you're not going to make a fool out of me here. So technically, technically, it's a question of this being an unsolved murder. I would contend that the police got their man, indicted their man, and then through the case, as it was so often the case, in the New York City judicial system um, at that time. Other possible assassins included Titanic Thompson and Nate Raymond, the gamblers who had organized the poker game. They were also owed a debt by Rothstein. Or it could have been Dutch Schultz, Rothstein's notoriously unstable protege who wanted to steal his business. The list of suspects was long, but the list of evidence was short. No one was ever convicted for the crime. And it's a very powerful lesson to people like Meyer Lansky that anybody can be taken out. There's a great line in The Godfather when Michael Corleone says, if history has taught us any, anything, it's you could kill anybody. And what's so shocking about the death of Arnold Rothstein is nobody would have thought such a thing would have been possible. But it was very possible, and it happened. But Rothstein, a gambler to the end, had one last bet to win. Rothstein dying when he did that particular day was the day that the presidential election was being held in the United States. And he had bet on Hubert Hoover. And Hubert Hoover won. The money that was due Rothstein that day would have been enough to cover all his gambling debts and still allow him to walk out with a huge profit. When the news seeps out about Arnold Rothstein's shooting and death. It sends shockwaves throughout all of gangland because he's the fellow who brought Lansky and Siegel 
and Luciano and Schultz into prominence. He is the fellow that they would turn to to settle disputes. The fixer, the great go-between, the conciliator. Now they're going to have to create another mechanism to deal with their disputes. In Atlantic City, Rothstein's protégés and associates met. They had to figure out what would happen next. The king is dead. Who's going to replace him? Who could possibly replace a man who fixed the 1919 World Series? Who bankrolled rum running? Who created the modern American drug trade? Pitted gangsters on either side of labor racketeering, the protection rackets, any sort of gambling, the big houses, the tracks, the loan sharking. Wherever a buck was to be made, Arnold Rothstein made it. Wherever a career was to be made, Arnold Rothstein made careers in the gangland empire of the 1920s. They didn't quite know what to do when he was gone, but they knew one thing, they'd never forget him. The men Rothstein schooled and styled in the ways of organized crime split up his empire and took his lessons to heart. Lucky Bacalter and Lucky Luciano would continue to expand the drug business across America and start their own larger organization. The gangsters that are going to follow Rothstein, uh, they're ready to move in pretty quick to take over his empire, and they divide up uh, of some of the various rackets that he's involved with. And uh, for the most part now, they're Italians. Uh, Lucky Luciano, who uh, moved in and became the number one uh, mobster in New York City. Uh, there were some other guys that uh, uh, ride those uh, coattails. Louis Burkhalter, nicknamed Lepke. He's really one of the last Jewish mobsters, but he gets out of the rackets more or less when Rothstein's gone, the Italians take over. And he, he starts this organization, Murder Incorporated, where they're going to be hired to do the rubouts for the mob, and they do hundreds of them. But his influence would stay with the American Mafia forever. The clean-cut, sharp-dressed, and well-mannered gangster was here to stay, thanks to Rothstein. Rothstein's model, or example, kind of paves the way for the people that follow him, and that's why they're able to stay one step ahead of the law for so many years, although they all eventually get caught. But for many years, they enjoy this... uh, power that they have and the lifestyle that it generates and the publicity and notoriety that they get being in this uh, in organized crime. So, uh, but Rothstein is the guy that kind of sets up this model that really followed to this day. You always hear mobsters that are successful run their crime like a business. And you hear that to this day. Then, then, then dress better look better, act better, don't kill each other, Um, manufacture good liquor, not bathtub gin. And so, ironically, you have this bunch of criminals that is coming together to talk about self-improvement, which is a very American phenomenon. Rothstein's death meant the end of an era, not only for himself, 
but for his connections within the world of politics. Without him, Tammany Hall fell. When the news comes out that Arnold Rothstein is dead, it sends shockwaves through not only gangland, but also through the world of New York City politics because they know Arnold Rothstein's papers may reveal a great deal about a great many so-called respectable people. And they do not want that found out. Most of his papers disappear. Some survive. And ultimately what they do is lead to investigation of New York City judges and then other officials and the mayor and bring down the entire Tammany system of government in New York City leading to the reform administration of Fiorello LaGuardia and in how the case of New York City corruption triggered by the remainder of Rothstein's papers, how that case is handled leads, helps lead to the election of Franklin D. Roosevelt as president of the United States in 1932. So, the experience of one young gambler who starts out in penny ante card games, then becomes the biggest gambler in America, really, at that time, has implications which reach all the way up to City Hall in New York and the White House in Washington, D.C. The legend of Arnold Rothstein still holds strong. There continue to be theories about his mysterious death, and there are those who look for his fabled fortune. Both when Rothstein and later, 55 years later, when Meyer Lansky died, everybody was looking for their empire, and they never found it. And people said that they never found it because they were too smart. The reason they never found it is there never was an empire. In the next episode... When Lucky Luciano, the head of the Genovese family, was sent to prison, there were two people fighting it out to take his place. Frank Costello and Vito Genovese. Lucky Luciano used Vito Genovese as his intimidator. He also used Frank Costello as his diplomat. Luciano would use intimidation if he had to, but if he preferred Costello's approach. But he would use intimidation. The friendly Castello made himself known as the Prime Minister, accepted by both the mob and citizens. But he would not be accepted by Genovese. Everybody knew that Genovese wanted Frank's job, but he couldn't take the job. The other bosses wouldn't have allowed that as long as Frank was riding high. Frank was the political fix. Frank had the connections. And Costello had someone else creeping after him, the FBI. In the early 1950s, when a senator from the state of Tennessee was trying to make a mark, trying to make, get, some notor- get some publicity, uh, launched hearings. His name was Estes Kefova. He launched hearings into actually gambling, big-time gambling in the big cities. This has been an Audio Boom and World Media Rights co-production, hosted by me, Fleet Cooper. It is produced by Audioboom's Rachel Jacobs, Casey Georgie, and Karen Bevan, and by Pascal Hughes for World Media Rights. 
We had additional production help from World Media Rights by Gerald Zabingua and James Tyndale. David McNabb is the series' creative director, and the executive producers for Audioboom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. Thanks to Best Fiends, The Books Company, and Upstart for sponsoring this episode. Follow Mafia on Spotify, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.